Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you today. For those of you uh, who don't know me, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here at C3. If you're visiting with us today, perhaps for the first time, it's kind of odd to come in on a Sunday morning and have the worship leader tell you that he's leaving. We kind of run church like Survivor here. He got voted out this week. Next week, it might be me. Um, But as Seth said, we're looking for kids, volunteers. You actually get immunity from being voted out of the church if you serve in C3 Kids. So go and uh, talk with Jordan and Ross back there, get you signed up for that. You can stick around here for a long time, which we really hope as well. No, I'm just joking. Um, We are so glad and grateful for Gatlin's ministry here. And for those of you who've been here for a while or those who have not been here for a while, many of the people that you see up here have been long contributors to the worship ministry. And so you will see a lot of continuity on Sunday mornings, both in our worship team and in our music. And we're excited for Gatlin and the season ahead of him, but we're also excited for what the Lord uh, is doing here. Uh, So as I said, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here. If you're new to an elder-led church, the way that that works here is that we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus, when he instituted his church, said that there should be a plurality of men who shepherd and teach and care for and love the church. And so every month, Seth will sit down and give one of the other uh, men here an opportunity to get up and share Jesus's heart for you from the scriptures. And that's what I am here to do this morning as we continue in our series through the I Am Statements of Jesus in the book of John. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 15, so if you'll turn there, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one on your row. It's page 901 on the Bible in your row there. If you don't have a Bible at home and would like to take that, you are welcome to take it. It's not stealing. I've given you permission. Or if you don't have a Bible that's easy to read and understand, certainly you can take that one home with you as well as a gift from us. So let's go ahead and take a look there this morning. John chapter 15 will be in verses 1 through 8. You can follow along in your Bible or we'll have the words on the screen for you as well. John 15 starting verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Amen. So, so far, church, as we've gone through this series this this summer, we've seen in the book of John that Jesus has made these statements about himself. He said, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and many others. And today is the final I am statement that Jesus gives to his disciples here. And he says, I am the vine. I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser, and you are the branches. And so this morning, we ask the question, why this analogy? What does it mean that Jesus says that he is the vine? Now, I'm not very good in the garden. 
truth be told, I think everything that I have ever planted has died. Every beautiful growing thing at my house in my front yard, if you were to come by, was planted by my younger brother, who's this brilliant landscaper horticulturist. He can think about something growing and it will, will magically grow. The plants that are in our flower beds up front that I planted alongside of him, they all died, but all his stuff is still alive. Every tree that's in our yard was planted by a landscaping crew and all of those still live except for two trees. One of them was this beautiful tree. My wife had this this incredible process she went through to figure out, okay, we've got a brand new house. Unlike the woodlands, they decided to come in and raise all of the trees. Why would you do that? So there's no trees, there's no foliage. How do we get something that's gonna grow really fast? And so she does all this research and she finds this tree and she tells me about it and shows me pictures and goes, it's gonna have these huge leaves and these beautiful white blooms and we'll put it right in the middle of the backyard and it'll shade the whole backyard and within five years, it's just gonna be this amazing huge tree and no one will know. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I can plant a tree. How hard is it to plant a tree? So I go in the back backyard, and I dig a spot for the tree, and I plant it, and after one season, this beautiful tree is completely dead, because everything that I touch in the garden dies. Every plant in my house is fake. You can come over and laugh at all my fake plants. I don't care. I don't want to see plant carcasses in my house, okay? I'm not good in the garden, but I understand how this works, right? I know enough about plants to know that the life of a plant courses from the roots up to the stem, the trunk, the vine, and then it goes out to the branches. That's how it works. And if you're a disciple and you're listening to Jesus, or if you're a person in the first century and you're listening to Jesus talk, you live in this agricultural society, you knew how things grew because you depended on it for your livelihood, for your sustenance. You understood that life in a plant comes from within and it flows out to the branches. And so this imagery of Jesus being the vine and these branches being connected to it for the disciples and and for us would immediately conjure up these ideas of connectedness and dependence and unity and life that flows from the vine to the branches. And I certainly believe that Jesus intends for us to see that and and have a sense in which we understand that our spiritual life flows from him to us, all good things. But Jesus did not call himself a vine simply to illustrate that concept. Notice what he says in verse one. He says, I am the true vine. He calls himself a vine, but the true vine for a very specific reason. And that's because there was a corrupt vine. There was a broken vine. What do I mean by that? Take a look at Psalm 80 with me. Psalm 80. Starting in verse 8, it says this. You, speaking of God, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations out before it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. You see this imagery of this sprawling, 
vine of Israel that God took out of Egypt and planted and, and spread all over the land is native to the Old Testament. This imagery of the vine was so central to Israel's identity and who they believed themselves to be that in Herod's temple, there was this huge golden vine that overlaid the temple that was representative of the nation of Israel. And if you'd been alive at that time in the centuries leading up to Israel and you'd gone to the market and you'd bought something and you'd looked at the coin that you used to pay, you'd have vines on the coin because Israel understood themselves to be the vine of God. But what kind of vine were they? They were a fruitless vine. Prophets say that they were barren, that they were worthless. There was no life in them. Isaiah says that God gave them all that they needed to be fruitful. And instead, they produced sour, useless fruit. They were planted in the promised land so that the nations around them might see them and see their fruit and experience the goodness and the life and the character of God and by being grafted into the vine, experience the life that was possible by knowing the one true God, Yahweh. But instead, the people of Israel failed over and over and over again. And so Jesus steps in and says, I am the true vine. What is he saying here? I think he's saying two things that are vitally important for us to understand. And the first thing is this. Jesus is saying, I am the way through which people are now connected to God, and God is connected to the world, right? That was Israel's job, was that people would know who God is and how to be connected to him by watching the life of the people of Israel. And they failed, but Jesus steps in and says, if you want to know the Father, and if the Father wants to know you, it's through me. This is groundbreaking, especially for the disciples. Imagine how much, remember how much is tied up in their heritage as Jews. They believed that because they were the people of God, they were the way. They had a special connection, and Jesus is showing up here, and what are you saying by saying, hey, I'm, I'm replacing the vine, I'm the true vine. He's saying your heritage doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you grew up. Doesn't matter whether your daddy was a pastor, whether your mommy was, was a good Christian. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Doesn't matter if you're a heathen. It doesn't matter if you're righteous or sinner. Doesn't matter what you've done. Nothing matters to know the Father except that you know me. Your good deeds, your sacrifices, your efforts, these things don't connect you to the Father. It is solely through me, Jesus the vine. As we saw last week, no one comes to the Father but through him. I think the second thing it communicates is more subtle, but it's equally important. And it's that because we fail to live up to God's standards, Jesus stands in as our substitute. Right? Where Israel failed, Jesus came in and provided a better way. Where we fail to live up to God's standards, Jesus stands in as our substitute. That's the true gospel message in all of this, isn't that? That's, that's the heart of Jesus saying he's the vine. He's saying, I am everything you could never be. And I'm sufficient for you. I'm everything that you could never be. I can do everything that you could never do. I am able to stand in and be for you what you ultimately could never be. And by my 
substitution. You have access to the Father. You see, the people of Israel, the disciples needed a different way. They needed a true vine to stand as better representation in C3 family. So do we as well. Because no matter what God has commanded the people of Israel to do or us to do, outside of Jesus, we do not have hope. He is our true vine. He is our source of life. And so Jesus is the true vine. But there's two other parties in the story here, aren't there? Jesus says, I'm the true vine. But he also says, the father is the vine dresser. And then you have the branches. But you see in verse 2 that there are branches who don't bear fruit and are taken away. And then there's branches that do bear fruit that are pruned that they might bear even more fruit. That's verse 2. So you've got the father, the vine dresser, and you've got these two types of branches. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me start by clarifying what this doesn't mean. I think that's really important for us to do this morning. Let me start by clarifying what this does not mean, right? There are many people who come to this passage and walk away thinking, oh man, this is, is, is this saying that if I don't abide in the vine, that if I don't abide in Jesus, that I I risk being taken away? Is that, is that really what's being said here? Is it possible that I could lose my salvation if I don't bear enough fruit, i.e. if I don't evidence the life of Jesus inside of me? If I don't bear enough fruit for, for a long season or even a really, really long season in my life, does, does it get to the point where if I'm not bearing any fruit at all, that that, that means something about me? Help, help me understand that. And if that thought has ever crossed into your mind this morning, or crossed into your mind at all, I hope to provide you some relief and some hope. So we've seen Jesus already speak about this issue here in the book of John. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. We've seen this when he talks about being the shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Church, it's impossible for you, if you've been saved by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus, to lose what the Lord has done for you. You know that this morning? There's great security in that. That means that even on your worst day, your worst month, your worst year of following Jesus, if he has saved and redeemed you, you're his. You can't undo that. You can't undo that by your failures. You can't undo that by apathy. You can't undo that by your sin. He is strong and he is mighty. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith, not you. He will bring those to himself who are his one day, no matter how broken or bruised or triumphant. And I hope that brings you great comfort today, sinner, because I know it does for me. Because I would venture to guess that there are at least a few of you in here when we talk about abiding, because we're going to get there 
That's the thrust of the passage this morning, is to abide in Jesus. Deeply abide in the vine. Who sit back and say, man, it's been a long time since I've done that. And somewhere in the back of your mind, maybe you believe that God has given up on you or that you've been stagnant for too long for him to accept you or love you or welcome you back. And the good news this morning is that you can go ahead and set that aside as a lie. And you can recognize that if you are his, you're always his. And so you can draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And you can turn from sin and stagnation and apathy and you can return to the fountain of life. And I hope that comes as good news to you this morning. So that's what it's not saying. It's not saying that that's happening. So what is it talking about, right? So surely as vine dresser, it's God's nature to prune and to purge. It's God's nature to judge and to justify. I think the context of this passage really helps answer what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about branches that are taken away. Consider with me for just a minute where the disciples are as Jesus is saying this. If you were to look in your Bible, if you have it open, you would look at the very end of chapter 14, and Jesus says, come, let's go from here, or rise, let's go from here. Here is the Last Supper, and and what has happened during the Last Supper is that Jesus has sat down with his disciples for a matter of hours, and they've shared the Passover meal together, and he's looked at them, and he said that where I'm going, you can't follow me, and he's looked at Peter, and he said, Peter, I know you think that you're going to go to the ends of the earth for me, but before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times, and the disciples have been perplexed, and they've wondered, and they've questioned why Jesus is saying the things that he's saying when they've peppered him with questions and he's given them answers, but there's also something that happened during the Last Supper. Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to betray me. Now, it would have been really easy if in that moment everyone had looked at Judas and just been like, dude, come on, man. Like, you were always the weird one, but seriously, like, why did you, come on, dude, seriously, like, but they didn't do that. They didn't. They looked around the room, Judas with a veiled expression, I'm sure, as well, questioning, what did that mean? Who could that possibly be? Judas got up from the table and left, and they had no idea what he was doing. He's gone. And so step back for a moment and consider this. One of these disciples, after years of faithful service, years of witnessing miracles, of listening to everything that was said, Jesus is saying is actually a false disciple. There's nothing obvious about Judas's life that would have caused anyone to suspect him, right? For all sakes and purposes, he was visibly externally attached to Christ. He did what everyone else did. He said what everyone else said. But internally, there was no connection. There was no life coming from the vine into the branch. There was no righteous fruit born out of yieldedness to the Spirit and trust in Jesus. He was a branch to be gathered and burned. This idea is not unusual in Scripture, is it, church? That's why we have parables about separating the wheat from the chaff, about separating the sheep from the goats. That's why you have Jews standing up and saying, our father is Abraham, and Jesus saying, no, your father is the devil. As Paul says in Romans, one is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but one whose heart has also been circumcised. There have always been and there will always be in every era, every age of the church, people who have an external religion that they are following with behavior modification and pious deeds and good outward behavior, but internally there's never been a heart change. 
there's never been a relationship with Jesus. There's never been a spirit-created life that produces God-glorifying fruit. They're connected to the vine, but it's merely external. There's no life inside. John wrote about them again in, in 1 John chapter 2, speaking of people in the church who've turned their backs on Christ. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So what do we do with that? I realize this is a heavy topic, but it's here, it's present, it's in the text, we've got to deal with it. What do we do with that? How do we handle that? Because I'm sure there's a lot of us in here this morning who have a friend or a child, a parent, sibling, that's walked away from the faith. People I've poured my life into over the years who have packed it up and gone home and said, this is not for me. I don't, I don't think I buy this anymore. People who've poured their life into me, and you wake up one day and you go, man, if they're out, was anything that they ever said to me really true? I don't get it. What do we do with all these very real memories and stories of how this person demonstrated love for the Lord? I know for some of us there's pain associated with those relationships. What happens as with the disciples here with Judas when someone walks away? And I think the answer is simply this. It's to pray and to hope. To pray and to hope. We don't like that answer as Americans because we feel compelled to do something, right? And that's not off the table. The Lord may use you to speak into that person's life, but you pray. You pray that God would save them. Save them from a life of sin which seems so alluring and deceptive. Pray that God would allow the weight and the pain of disconnectedness from him drive them to repentance. Pray that the Lord would break through the clouds of darkness and shine upon them. Pray that the Lord would save them from spiritual death from which they've either never awakened or from the slumber that has taken deep grab of their soul. It may be that you were effectually praying for them to repent and turn to the Lord as a believer who has grieved the Spirit or you were praying for them to repent and come to the Lord for the first time. It's not for us to know that. They're not the savior of man or the seer of the soul. So we hope and pray that as long as they have breath in their lungs, they turn to the Lord. So with the vine, there are branches to be taken away. But what about the other branches? Those that are pruned. That would be you and me. Those who are connected to Christ in a real life-giving, spiritually transformed way. And our call this morning is to faithfully abide in the vine as the father prunes and shapes us to become more fruitful. Let's look back at this passage, verse four. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jump down to verse seven. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's this beautiful word picture here, isn't there, that shows us this dependence, daily dependence that we're called to have on Christ. But I want you to zoom in on verse 8 because I think it provides focus to what our entire purpose of abiding is. The Father receives glory when what? Verse 8. When we bear fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. Church, when we ultimately understand that our primary aim and purpose in life is to bring glory to God, it frames everything else that we do. 
When we understand that our primary aim in life is to bring glory to God, it frames everything else that we do. So then how do we bear fruit and evidence that we are Christ's to bring Father glory by abiding? Right? Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. What does it mean to abide? That's not a word we use often, right? I think Jesus gives us a few key points about what it means to abide. The first is this. Notice verse 4 where it says, The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Abiding is first and foremost an act of receiving from Christ and trusting him as your source. Abiding is first an act of receiving from Christ and trusting him as your source. Your source of what? Your source of joy, your source of life, your source of wisdom, your source of validation, your source of satisfaction. All good things, all outworkings of righteousness in our life that can be classified as fruit only come because the life of Christ has first worked itself in us so that it can be outwardly displayed as fruit in our lives. And this is both passive and active, isn't it? There's the passive act of receiving and trusting Christ daily. For me, what that looks like is going, okay, today I will not set my hand to the plow of working out my own righteousness. Because I want to do that. I want to be responsible for making myself holy. I want to work hard enough and do enough good to justify myself before the Father instead of sitting back and going, whether I succeed or fail in being righteous today, I am before the Father because I'm Christ's. So I won't set my hand to the plow of working out my own righteousness today as though I could add to anything Christ has done for me. Let me rest in that truth. It's part of abiding, receiving that from Christ, trusting that from Christ, believing that deeply from Christ so that when you fail or you succeed, you recognize that ultimately you are dependent upon him and his righteousness alone. But it's active as well, isn't it? Because we recognize that we can do nothing apart from him, so we also choose to draw near. We choose to pray. We choose to worship. We read the Bible. We confront sin. We repent. We welcome the Lord to prune us. We say, Lord, if difficulty or hardship or taking things from me that I idolize more than you is necessary for me to be more holy, then do the pruning work that only you can do. I welcome that. I choose to draw near to you. I want to be in your word. I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want you to lead and guide me. Because outside of you, I can do nothing. So I'm not going to sit and wait for you to rend the heavens and speak to me. I'm going to come to you, be near you, experience you, and all of your goodness. Because that's my life. So we receive passive and we, we engage actively. It's abiding in the vine. And there's a special value placed on the words of Jesus as well when it comes to abiding. Isn't there? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. There's a very real day-by-day connection we have to Christ through the leading and direction of the truth of Scripture as well. And so part of abiding is holding fast to the word by letting this truth sink deep into our hearts, letting it guide our thought life and our prayer life, 
so that the things that God wants become the things that we want as well. And in so doing, we become people who are shaped and formed by the words of Jesus so that our lives demonstrate his life flowing through us in righteous fruit to the glory of God the Father. But that's not entirely on us, is it? Let's not forget that the Father is the vine dresser who prunes. I shared with you earlier about a story, uh, the story about how I kill every plant in our yard. And I told you there's two trees that I planted. <clears throat> and um, I, I still, by the way, that's still true. I still kill everything, just so you know. Just don't give me any credit there. This tree is smack dab in the middle of our front yard. And I planted that, and wouldn't you know it, guess what happened after year one? Anybody want to help me out? Guess what happened to it? It died. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Why did it die? There's a lot of good reasons why, but I'm number one, and then environmental factors are number two. So Sheridan, my dear wife, suggested that we coppice the tree and give it one more try. Clearly, you're all arborists, and you know that coppice is not just a fancy word for a special tree funeral, because that's kind of what I heard. Um, no, so coppicing a tree, by the way, is where you take a tree that is very much alive, and you cut down the growth all the way to the stump. And what happens in that moment is the tree goes into survival mode, and it puts all of the energy that it has into growing brand new shoots rather than trying to pump life into what already exists. And before long, the tree will grow back healthier and stronger than it was before. And so we did. And then we waited through the fall, through the winter, and through the spring. And just when I was about to go out one day in a fit of rage with a shovel and dig the thing up, because I surely thought there's no way this is going to work, because again, I touched the tree in order to coppice it, so whatever bad vibes exist in my body were immediately implanted deep to the roots of this tree. When I thought we'd go and pull the thing up and start over, we began to see growth. And now the tree is leafy and beautiful and taller than it ever was before, even though it got pruned back to almost nothing. Why do we do that? Because for the tree to experience the growth that it needed, someone who knew how to care for the tree needed to look at it and say, you know, this tree could be a lot more than it is, but in order to get there, we're going to have to do some work. And it may pain the tree, and it may take time to see growth, but soon enough, leaves will appear, and the growth will become apparent. How incredible is it, as we come to this passage this morning, that God does the same thing for us? That Jesus looks at us and he says, I'm the vine. All good things that you need for life will flow from me to you. Abide in me. Draw upon me. I'm here for you. But I'm not going to leave you where you're at. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to fail to care for your needs. My father is the vine dresser, and he knows how to care for you. He knows how you need to grow. He knows how to make you fruitful. He knows how to make you abound beyond what you could ever imagine. And so he'll do that for you. He'll prune you. Pruning isn't always easy, is it? Sometimes it happens through drawing near to Jesus and seeing him in his word and through community and through prayer. And it's a very positive, very encouraging thing, but it also often comes through trial, doesn't it? I would venture to guess that for many of us, 
Some of the most seminal moments in our spiritual formation were not the times of victory, but they were the times where we really sensed Jesus and grew in him because things were hard. Is that you this morning? Can you relate to that? The times where you've really seen Jesus show up in your life and do work have usually been, for many of us, during the hard seasons. It could be a season that happens because something fell through or we failed in something that we worked really hard for. It could be something that happens with your health or someone else's health. It could be that your friend moves to Oklahoma. Thank you, Gatlin. It could be that your people in life around you create grief or difficulty or problems or whatever, but when those times come, instead of wallowing in self-pity or getting angry or complaining or being anxious, we should pray and say, Lord, thank you for desiring that I be more like Jesus. Thank you for letting me experience hardship, for wanting me to bear more fruit, for giving me the opportunity to grow to be more like Jesus. Help me to struggle well and to consider it joy when I'm being pruned. I want to do that. I mean, just on a personal level, I'm not great at that. But I want to. I want to be. I want to welcome the pruning shears of the Father, believing that there is fruit to be born, which is far greater than the relief I might experience in the moment from the trial being over. I really believe that. And so what do we do with all of that? What do we do with all of that this morning? I'll try to condense it down to just a couple things and then we're done. Number one is this. If you are in this room this morning, Christian, you're called to abide. So quiet your soul and wait on the Lord. Quiet your soul and wait on the Lord. Him being the vine and us being the branches means that we remain connected to him. He's our source, our sustainer. All that we truly need comes from him. We're so good as people, especially as Americans, as running after things. We like to believe we control our own destiny. We like to believe that the only limitations to what we can do are time and money and ourselves. And I think somewhere in the midst of all of that, we often forget that our call as Christ followers is to live in this humble, daily dependence and reliance upon the sustaining grace and presence of Jesus. And so quiet your soul and wait on the Lord. What's giving you anxiety right now? What problem are you walking through? Where are you living in discontentment and dissatisfaction? Run to Jesus. Go to the vine. Find life. Since we're in Christ, because he's the vine, the second thing I think we do is this. We abide deeply and we bear fruit. We align our lives and our priorities and our attitudes and our behaviors through reading the word and through prayer and through scripture. We proactively live out the truth of scripture and let him lead and direct us in all that we do. And, and finally today, maybe you're sitting there and you go, you know what, Chris, I, I look like a branch connected to all the things that a branch should be connected to, but I gotta be honest with you, I don't know that there's life in me. Grew up in church, been around church. But I don't know that this life that you're talking about coursing from the vein into the branch really is true of me. I don't know that I've ever really experienced that. And if that's you this morning, the call for the, the Christian, the call for the believer in the room this morning is to abide. The call for you is to come. The call for you is to come, to repent, to turn from your sin, and to turn to Christ. Because remember, there's nothing that you and I could ever do to merit or satisfy the standards that God has for us. But he's the true vine. 
He's the way to be connected. He stands in and does what we could never do. And so you can come to him and embrace his righteousness and his goodness and his connection to the Father that you would be connected as well. And if that's you today, I'd be happy to meet with you. Pastor Seth would be happy to meet with you. We'd love to talk to you today about what it really means to know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who abide deeply in you. Help us this week to set aside our own pursuit of making ourselves holy and receive and embrace all the goodness that comes from you being the true vine. May your life flow deeply in us and through us that we would bear fruit and glorify you, Father, by showing ourselves as Christ's. In our words, our actions, our deeds, Father, we want to make the world aware of the goodness of being known by the Father and being grafted in to the vine. And Father, we're going to do that by quieting ourselves and waiting upon you. And we're going to do that by worshiping you. And we're going to do that by proclaiming how incapable we are and how amazing you are, how reliant we are upon you. We're also going to do it by pursuing you. Receive our worship today. Amen.